Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. We are glad that you're here this morning. Just a few minutes ago, we introduced ourselves to one another, and we had a number on our shirts that said, mine said 73, and uh, there was someone, <clears throat> Denise, uh, who thought that the number actually stood for what year we graduated high school. <laughs> so 73 was not the year I graduated high school, and neither was it the year that Miss Marilyn graduated high school. As well. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, we knew everything was right after that. So, uh, <laughs> so that works as a good transition for me this morning, though, of what do people remember about you from high school? What do they remember about you? When uh, my brother in law had his 20 year anniversary, 20 year reunion uh, this weekend, and I also heard about Miss Denise and Pam Duda, they realized. Oh, by the way, we both graduated from Depew High School. They had no idea of that. You guys got out the old uh, yearbooks and everything else to prove the fact, right? And so um, when you go back and you think about it, so my wife, Erin, uh, I'd like to brag on her. What she's remembered for in high school, at least what I think that she's remembered for, and her face is in bronze at the school for this. Um, yes, that's true. Real, real story. And so if you go to the school, you'll see her face on the wall along with Outstanding Seniors, the Stephen Mavis Smith Outstanding Senior Award. And there's every year there's these one student is selected. It's not necessarily the valedictorian, although it can be. Uh, this is a student who's involved in student government, who is just generally uh, very involved in the school, an outstanding senior. And so that's what Aaron is remembered for in our high school. I am not remembered for that in our high school. Most people probably would remember that I'm one of those guys in the boy band. That's what, so what became a boy band? So if, if you don't know what a boy band is, let me give you a few of the uh, things that you need to be. You need to be a high school teenager. So we had that part down. Uh, you need to sing. We had that part down. Uh, you need to be a chick magnet or a heartthrob. We did not have that part down. Uh, you need to be obsessed with pop culture. You need to be singing pop music. We did not have that part uh, down. We actually started out as a doo-wop uh, quartet, and then it transitioned a little bit. We started singing barbershop quartet music, and then there was, of course, a uh, disagreement in the band, and we had to get the band together because we were going to split up over the disagreement as to whether or not we were going to continue to do barbershop music, and we uh, the compromise was that we would sing uh, some of the popular songs of the day, but we would continue to do so a cappella, which is not what a boy band does. And, uh, and boy bands uh, dance and sing at the same time, or alleged to, and um, we did not dance at all. And so, uh, and we were not, we didn't ha have a good music behind us or anything like that. And so uh, what it really meant was that we would take a microphone and stand awkwardly while everyone waited and we would sing a song and then they would decide that we were done and that was it. That was us being a boy band. In fact, we actually performed at our uh, high school prom a couple different years and I remember the DJ very specifically, he had heard that there was a boy band in the school and so he had, he asked us whether we needed, you know, a CD track or something behind us. I was like, no, 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 we don't need any of those things. We, we sing a cappella. And then we got done, we sang our song. Uh, something I'm sure that was awkwardly done by Backstreet Boys or 98 Degrees or something like that. 
And then we got done, and you could see when we handed the microphone back to the DJ that he was basically saying, that was the weirdest thing I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> That's what I'm remembered for. But we did have some neat opportunities that came out of it. My music teacher uh, created some neat opportunities for us. And so not many people can say that they have sung the national anthem and the Canadian national anthem at numerous Sabres games. I did probably 10 different Sabres games during that time. We got paid with being able to go to the Sabres game. I got to do the MAC tournament, the national anthem uh, for the MAC tournament. So a few neat opportunities that came along. So my music teacher, uh, so she did not want to drive the short bus to drive four of us to these events and these different things. And so she got permission to drive the school's driver ed car uh, to take us to these different things. And um, we didn't, because we were teenagers, we didn't really realize kind of she was doing this on the outs, you know, on her own time, taking us to different things, setting things up for us, and, and really kind of pulling a lot of strings to make these things happen. And uh, we thought we were pretty hot stuff, and, and so that was why these things were happening, and, and that's not the case. Um, but in the driver's ed car, because we were teenagers and generally cruel people, uh, there was a break on the passenger side of the driver's ed vehicle. And so as my music teacher is driving us into the city or driving us, we would find the perfect opportunity to slam on the brakes at the wrong time. Do you know what I mean? Like right when you're about to accelerate onto the expressway into traffic, one of us would stand on the brakes and see what would happen. Or right when the light would turn green and all the cars are honking behind her, one of us would be standing on that brake to keep from, you know, going out into traffic. There is a wrong time to slam on the brakes. And we did the best we could as annoying uh, teenagers in high school to do that at the wrong time. But there are, as drivers, you know, there are correct times to slam on the brakes. Some of you are bringing up children right now who are learning how to drive. The Stillmans, we're praying for you. And you wish that you had a passenger seat brake. Uh, many parents, my dad was this way, when, when in the passenger seat, he didn't have a passenger seat brake, but you could hear him stomp on the floor to cry to stop the vehicle and, and, and let you know that. So there's, there are appropriate times to stop. If a deer runs out in front of you, you need to slam on the brakes. If there is an accident in front of you, you need to slam on the brakes. If things happen to happen like in the movies, if a transformer happens to walk out into the street in front of you, you should hit the brakes. If something explodes in front of you, you should hit the brakes. If a man with a gun is running around in the street in front of you, you should slam on the brakes. There is an appropriate time to slam on the brakes. If you've got your Bible, try to transition this. Uh, if you've got your Bible, I hope you do. Will you open up today to the book of Titus? The book of Titus, we are, this is week number three in a series in Titus called the Grace Driven Church. Last week we looked at the qualifications for elders and we said that everything rises and falls on leadership. As you make your way there, the book of Titus, if you've got your own Bibles or there's a black Bible in front of you, it would be page 1251 there. I just want to recap for you a little bit of last week. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, he wrote a book called At Ease, The Stories I Tell to Friends. He recalls an encounter early in his career with a young officer who got caught cheating in the game of cards. And this is how the uh, interaction went. When he came in, I had laid out the pack of cards on the front of the desk. Do you see these cards? I asked. 
Yes. Are they yours? Do you recognize them? He flushed and said, no, he couldn't. Well, I can show you exactly where you have marked these cards. Would you like me to do it? He stammered, no. To end it, I asked, would you rather resign at once for the good of the service, or would you like to be tried by a general court-martial? I'll submit my resignation this afternoon, he said. Two or three days later, the congressman from his district came in, accompanied by the officer's father. The congressman introduced the latter as one of his most important constituents and suggested that I withdraw the son's resignation and transfer him to another base. I declined politely. This would be passing the problem on to another commander, and the man would repeat the same offense. You see, General Eisenhower knew that when it comes to leadership, it requires sterling character. If a man is caught cheating at cards, then it's only a matter of time before he's caught cheating in some other way. He's not trustworthy. He's not qualified to lead other men into combat. And I'll guess that if an officer today did what uh, Eisenhower did as the general, if they did what he did, they would probably be reprimanded for being too strict. Because now in our culture today, things have changed. Why the common view today is what a man does in his private life has nothing to do with what he does in his professional or public life. The reality is, is that is not what the Bible says about leadership. God views things differently. God says that character counts above all else. So if you're here last week, you wanted to really put down the point. If you, if you didn't hear it, if you weren't here, I just want you to know that leadership counts. That leadership matters. And not just anyone can lead the church. Not just anyone can drive the family vehicle. Not anyone. You can't just give the keys to anyone. That leadership matters. Character counts. And that's why you have these, uh, these restrictions when it comes down to being an elder. So... If the characteristics of a qualified leader are this, or of an elder, we talked about these last week, an elder or a leader should lead, you should lead your family well. You should lead yourself well. And you should lead a trustworthy life. Those are our three points from last week that I want you to remember. Lead your family well. Lead yourself well. Lead a trustworthy life. That trustworthy life verse comes from chapter 1, verse 9. I want you to land there this morning because that's going to be a transitional verse that kind of set things in motion for where we're going to go with our message today. Verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. That's what the NIV says. I want to just give you a couple other translations that you might be looking at to help really reinforce what it is saying. So verse 9 in the NASB says, holding fast to the faithful word. The King James Version says, holding fast, again, to the faithful word. The ESV says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. So it is not just the message, it is the word of God which is being taught and talked about here. This morning, a little bit out of the ordinary, we're going to do some flipping around and make our way through the Bible to different places this morning. Uh, will you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you make your way there, I want you to just realize that the value of Scripture, the priority of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, which with I am well pleased. He's referring to John the Baptist baptizing him. And when he came up out of the water, the voice from heaven said, this is my son who I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were there with him on that sacred mountain. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. So verse 18, he's talking about, remember, just Peter, James, and John were taken up to the top of the mountain. When they were taken up to the top of the mountain, that they said they, they saw Elijah and they saw others, that, and they wanted to be able to really demonstrate that this is the Son of God. And again, that voice from heaven, my Son, who I am well pleased. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is the light, the lamp unto our feet. This is what we live by, the word, the gospel, the Bible that is there for us, the scriptures. This is what lights our way until when? Until the morning star rises. We read in the book of Revelation that how in the end times that Jesus is our light. There is no need for a sun or a moon because he lights the way. But until then, we need his scripture to guide us, to light us. As a light shining in a dark place until that day dawns and the morning star rises. We put an incredibly high value on the word of God as it is teaching us here in Titus. We believe that scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking and training in righteousness. We believe that God's word, the very words of scripture are not only complete, but they are the final revelation from God. This is what God has said and when he closes the book in the book of Revelation, this is how he closes it. This is all that he has to say. We have complete word from him and they are the supreme standard. We believe that scripture never had its origin by the will of men. It was never a good story that could be told so that we could actually describe what had happened around us. But no, this was God's word and his will was what was going to be told. And his, th th these writers were actually speaking and writing down and actually articulating what God was doing in their lives and in their hearts. So it's the very heart of God breathed through authors. And that is what we get to read today. We believe in God's word. I want you to know God's word. I want you to read God's word. I want you to meditate upon God's word. I want you to read, if it's one verse, read it every day until it saturates yourself in God's word. To memorize it, to meditate on it. If you don't have a Bible, we will give you a Bible this morning, but you have to read it. You have to open it up. And the reality is most every person in the United States has a Bible, has multiple Bibles at home on a shelf somewhere. And certainly in the digital age, you have access to the scripture. But what does it come down to? Will you read it? Will you connect with it? Will you memorize it? Will you let God's word to be planted in your heart so that it can grow? We believe in God's word. Going back to Titus. Going back over to Titus. Verse 9 again says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, God's word, as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 
When you hear the word doctrine, the point that is being made here needs to be reminded that sound doctrine is for the purpose of encouragement. That is what sound doctrine does, is it encourages us. But it also has a secondary job. So these leaders in the church, again, remember these are leaders who are equipped to lead the church. Their responsibility, our responsibility as godly men and women is to use scripture to encourage one another. And then secondly, to refute or to rebuke those who contradict God's word. Do we know God's word? Can we deal with things? To be honest with you, this is not my favorite message. Where we are going with today's passage has to do with that second half of rebuking, having to do with, with calling out false teaching. And if we did not have a high value on God's word, you need to know that we, from a preaching standpoint, the way that we move through passages of scripture, we go through books of the Bible, we, we preach expositionally so that I don't get the opportunity to, not, to, to willfully say, you know what, I don't feel like talking about that this morning. Do you know why? Because if it's God's word, that's what drives our conversations. That's what drives our preaching calendar. That's what drives my sermon outline. That's what drives our community groups. That's what drives our small groups. That's what drives everything. And as I look at this passage... As I look elsewhere in the New Testament, when I read words of the apostles and I read words that have been written of Jesus Christ, we'll find that there are stiff words with false teachers. There are stiff words for those who pull away and, and pull people away from God's word. And so because there are stiff words there, then we also need to have that approach this morning. There is a right time to slam on the brakes. So, we slam on the brakes when, here's your first fill-in, if you're working through your fill-ins with this, it's a white sheet of paper. You slam on the brakes when unqualified leaders add to the gospel. Slam on the brakes when unqualified leaders add to the gospel. This is Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, how would you like to be known as the circumcision group? You know, we have the moms and more group. Uh, we have the 20s group, and, and I'm in the circumcision group. And Brian's designed us a pretty weird logo, but... <laughs> For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Verse 11, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Paul has found the people in Crete, which is where this letter is being written to Titus, who is serving there in Crete. He has found them to be gluttons. He has found them to be liars. He has found them to be brutes. And he said, that's what your own prophet, that's what your own writers have said about you, and I have found this to be true. Paul is saying this morning to them, and he's saying to us, do not add to the gospel. Do not add to the gospel. Don't add circumcision to the gospel. Don't add dietary restrictions to the gospel. Don't add sacrifices to the gospel. Don't add financial requirements to the gospel. Today, we, we have this problem 
It's different today, but it's still there. We can still see people who are adding biblical translation requirements to the gospel. We are adding shopping requirements, certain places you can and can't go to shop, adding that to the gospel, adding where your entertainment choices will take you, and adding that to the gospel to say, if you're a true believer, you will not go to this place or to that place, or what you eat or what you drink, and adding that to the gospel the distinction needs to be made. Augustine is most likely the one who said this, but other authors have been given the, the quote as well. In the essentials we have unity, in the non-essentials we have liberty, but in all things we have charity. So it's important for us, before we go any further here, to, to just kind of associate and, and, and be aware of the fact that there are essentials, there are non-essentials, but in all things we have charity. Here are some non-essentials. If your pastor wears a robe and a white collar to preach, that is a non-essential. That, that doesn't matter. It, that's a good thing. That's, if, I, if I wear a tie and I wear a suit, great. But that doesn't matter. That is a non-essential. If the music is sung in a cappella, fantastic. Maybe they'll start a boy band out of it. It'll be wonderful. That is, it's a non-essential. It doesn't matter. If the music is led by a guitar, if the music is led by an organ, if the music is led by a tabernacle choir, those are all fantastic. It's great. Those are non-essentials. If the King James Version is your preferred translation, that is fine. There is nothing the matter with that. If you read from a liturgy each Sunday, if, if your whole calendar year is set out and Scripture is being read, but it is only going to be read in a certain order, in a certain way, there is nothing the matter with that. That is a non-essential. If your communion is being served with actual wine, because that's what you see in Scripture, and so you want to serve actual wine, that is a non-essential. If you have a private prayer language in your prayer closet, that is a non-essential. But now, when those things start to get pulled away, and you start saying, but they are essentials, what if you asked your people, and there are, there are many who do this, to say, you must visit the Holy Land, or you are incomplete as a believer in Christ. Now you're starting to deal with things. If they, they call that an, an essential, that's a problem. You're adding to the gospel. Catholics, Roman Catholics have added the worship of the Virgin Mary. They are adding to the essentials of the gospel. Pentecostals have added the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that that is an essential to being a follower of Christ. They have added to the gospel. Fundamentalists have added a, new, a number of things to be able to say, this is how we legalist, legalistically control things, and this is where this all comes down. This is how you have to dress. This is where you shop. This is what you read. All of those things, that is an additive to the gospel. Mormons have added to the scripture. Uh, Joseph Smith and his teaching has been added to the scripture. They have added to the gospel. We had spent time, uh, this is a number of years ago now, when Pastor Josh was still here. Josh Larry was here as the lead pastor, and we were talking uh, with a Messianic Jew who wanted to plant a church in this area. And there is a need for that in this area. Outside of New York City, there is a more concentration of, of Jews in this area than anywhere else in the country. There is a, a need in Amherst for a Messianic Jewish church to be able to come in and be able to minister to that community. But as we went through that process, and, and it went from a difference between uh, this individual being willing to, to have different practices of how he ate in order to uh, meet the needs or, or be able to, his, his, his different practices that he would have, particularly this one of what he was eating, whether he was eating kosher or not. We sat down at a meal, and Josh sat there with him. I was at the table as well, and he intentionally ordered shrimp as part of his meal. 
so as to open up a discussion point with him. And to be honest, in the moment, I thought that Josh was pushing awful hard on what really doesn't matter. If this man wants to eat kosher and I don't, that doesn't matter. It's a non-essential. But as Josh pushed in on that, we realized that no, this man actually did believe that Josh, by eating shrimp at that meal, had jeopardized his eternal security. That is a major problem. And for that, we had to step away and back away from that. Something that just seemed as a non-essential. I don't mind how someone eats differently than me. But if it is becoming an essential of the faith, if it's been added to the gospel, that is a major problem. You see, we use the term cult uh, here in the scripture, a deceiver. They distort the truth. And specifically here for dishonest gain. See, that is what is so deceptive about a cult or so deceptive about a movement like that. There is a lot of truth that is there. But in the end, that 5%, 25%, whatever it is that starts adding to the gospel and taking it in a different direction, that is very, very problematic. Remember again the context of what is being written here in Titus in the island of Crete. We said last week this would be very much like trying to rise up leaders of the caste of the Pirates of Caribbean. Like this is a very difficult place. These are swindlers. These are cheats. These are liars. These are con men. Some of you had to read it in high school and you've seen maybe the movie of, of the, the story of Huckleberry Finn. Do you remember Huck Finn? And there's a scene in Huck Finn where there's these tent revival meetings and they've picked up these two con men uh, known as the Duke and the King that are, that are traveling with them. And they, they go to this tent revival meeting and, and things get, these con men kind of spin things out of control. And what was a, a healthy thing suddenly gets distorted. And all of a sudden, before you know what's happened, this re- revival service has now turned into these two men, these swindlers, these con men, these cheat, walking away with handfuls of money. What happened? They were being cheated. There was something in that meeting that was being added to the gospel. And for the purpose of, it says here, monetary gain. Unqualified leaders add to the gospel. Unqualified leaders add to the gospel. Let's continue on. Unqualified leaders subtract from or take from the gospel. Picking up in verse 13, second half. Therefore... Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. They are subtracting from the gospel. And by doing so, not only do they corrupt those and corrupt what they believe, they are actually corrupting their minds and their consciences as well. They are corrupting all that by subtracting from the gospel. Let's look at scripture for another illustration of this. Will you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul has written this letter to Titus here, but he's written a number of letters in the New Testament, so he's giving multiple examples to us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans would not tolerate. A man in your midst is sleeping with his father's wife. It's his stepmother. And you are proud. 
Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship this man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not even physically there, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, verse 4, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. They have subtracted from the gospel. They have pulled from the gospel and said there are things that don't matter. This church in 1 Corinthians is a damaged and broken church. And throughout this book, this is one example that I read through this morning, but this church, there's sermon series that have been called the 1 Corinthians church, the church gone wild. They've lost their minds, it would seem. And yet, saying that they are teaching and preaching the name of the gospel, you have this problem with a man sleeping with his stepmother. He says, get him out of your church. Deal with this problem. There are situations dealt with 1 Corinthians, getting drunk on the communion wine. There are situations because in that time frame it was a family meal that was held for that congregation. Those were, there were gluttons who were coming and eating and getting themselves sick and getting themselves drunk because they were having communion together. There was lawsuits within the church. They were suing one another for different things. And there was sexual immorality. There was idol worship going on in this church, all while proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord. Does that make it Okay. The whole time, they're making sure that they're talking about Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And so the deceitfulness, the deception is for us to say, well, it's okay. They were talking about Jesus. And Paul says, certainly not. Do not subtract from the gospel of Christ. And they're saying, look how free we are. Look how accepting we are of all these different people and all these different cultures and all these different lifestyles. We've invited them all in and we've told them all about Jesus. He says, no, this is sin. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Get this man out of your midst. Unqualified leaders subtract from the gospel. Slam on the brakes when you see someone adding to the gospel. Slam on the brakes when you see someone subtracting from the gospel. If there's ever a situation in this church or in any church where someone pulls you aside and says, you know, they're never going to say this from the pulpit, but let me show you this. Pay attention. There's a reason why that is not being said from the pulpit. If they're adding to the gospel, if they're subtracting from the gospel, unqualified leaders must be, false teachers, this is your next fill-in, must be silenced. Must be silenced. So we're back over in Titus now, chapter 1. We've already read these verses, but I want to highlight them to you again. Verses 9, 11, and 13. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and do what? Refute those or refuse those who oppose it. Then to verse 11. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households. They are creating chaos in the home by teaching things they ought not to teach and for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 13, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Take your Bibles again now. Go over to Galatians, if you will. Galatians. When you read about Titus, there's stuff to be written about Titus here in this book, the letter to Titus, but also in Galatians we read about Titus. Galatians chapter 2. 
Galatians chapter 2. Verse 3. Here's his name. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and want to make us slaves. Verse 5, we did not give in to them, for a, not for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Titus was a Greek. He's traveling along. He is this leader. He is, he's appointing elders in difficult places. And yet there are those who infiltrated the ranks of those who are sharing the gospel to say, well, what about him? He needs to be circumcised. He can be like the rest of you. And Paul says, absolutely not. I'm not going to buy into you so that you can put us back. He uses the word into slavery. We have the freedom in Christ Jesus. And we did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And just so that Paul is demonstrating here that he is not afraid to speak the truth of the gospel, let's go forward a few more verses because not only does he confront the false teachers, he confronts the apostle Peter. Verse 11, Paul is going to confront Peter here. When Cephas, and his name is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He said, I didn't send him a tweet. I did not send him a message. I didn't send him an email. I talked to him about this problem. For become, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he's afraid of those who belonged, again, to this circumcision group. Peter was teaching and preaching and raising up believers with the Gentiles. And then this group starts to come in and slowly Peter starts backing away so that he was not looked down on by this group. He starts backing away and suddenly Paul says, I can document you're no longer eating with the same people that you used to eat with. You are no longer affiliating with people you used to affiliate with because you're afraid of this group that says that you only are going to associate yourself with circumcised believers. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, Barnabas is one of the early church leaders. He's saying, Peter, look what's happening. This leader, this man that's been called by God, who's been serving with us, he is with us here. And because you have been hypocritical, you have pushed away one of our own. Barnabas has fallen away. Verse 14, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, you're getting caught up. You're, being, you're adding to the gospel. And so therefore, what you are doing has to stop. False teaching must be silenced. And Peter repents. Evidence in Scripture would show that Peter repents of this, that Paul calling him out and keeping him accountable, that Peter takes a step back. But many do not, and many will not. False teachers must be silenced. They must be cut off. That word silenced is the same word that it's used for, for cutting off a tree branch or lopping something off. It must be silenced. It must be, must be cut. It must be stopped. My cousin Jacob is a church planner, a pastor down in, in South Carolina near uh, Augusta, Georgia. But he went to Bible college in, in Florida. When he was in Bible college, he got a job uh, with a surveying company. Now, he, he knows 
zero. He knows nothing about surveying. He is not a detailed person. I don't know much about surveying either, but if, if someone's going to survey my property, they're going to tell me exactly where the corner post of my property is, correct? That, that's the job of a surveyor. My cousin has, has no details. He, he is not the right person for the surveying company. But he was given one job with the company. He was given one job, and he was given one tool, a machete. He loved his job. His job, and he would ride, his job was to go out with the surveyors and go out, and they were surveying an area uh, that had never been developed before, that they were creating the subdivision that was going to be going into this area, and they were putting a small highway through this area. And his job was to go through so that the, the guys who's shooting a line and looking through those things, those little tripods they stand on the side of the road and they're looking down through there, they needed a clear line of sight to be able to point to where is that next point. And they'd send Jacob out there and they'd say, make me a clear line. And he'd take his machete and he'd just go to town and make sure that there was nothing blocking that clear line of sight. He's not much of a morning person. But he started early in the morning at this job, and he would sit in the back of his pickup of the pickup truck. There'd be two guys up front, and he'd sit in the back, and all he'd do is just, just sharpen his machete. That's all he did. This was his dream job while in Bible college, just to go out and hack stuff up. That's his job. He'd sharpen that thing. That was his own, like he just wanted to make sure that boy, when he pulled that thing out, they'd point him and just say, go. And he'd start cutting stuff up. You know, we find in the book of Hebrews, you remember we weren't there too long ago? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive, it's active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? It penetrates the dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It could not be any sharper. And what is the purpose of Scripture? It is to cut away, to silence, to, to pull anything away that is getting distracted from the main thing. That's what God's word does. Here's the bottom line. We as believers, we as pastors get confused often. We feel like it's our responsibility in some way to protect Scripture, protect God's word. You need to understand, it is God's word that is protecting us. God's word has been under attack for years and years, centuries, 2,000 years. And God's word remains true. God will protect his word. God will protect his own. It is not our responsibility to protect God's word. It is make sure that God's word is living in us. It is sharp. It is active. It is cutting away all that shouldn't be there. Silencing false teaching. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians. Uh, before you do that, let me read this. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. It says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. You see, if we're going to cut away false teaching, we also need to know that sound doctrine must be proclaimed. Sound doctrine must be proclaimed. Now make your way, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because we're going to say sound doctrine must be proclaimed. What is it that we're proclaiming? What is it that we're saying that is, is the essential of the faith? What is the most important thing? that has to be said, that has to be told, that has to be shared, that we are going to make sure that is going to cut everything else away. What is that? Because if we, we have to be certain of that. Sound doctrine must be proclaimed. 
When I say sound doctrine, I mean that it resonates with us. It resonates with the Christian community. It's sound. It's, it's connected. Like a tuning fork. Have you ever seen a piano tuner? It takes a tuning fork and he rings that thing and it's A is 440 hertz and it rings. You go over to the piano, that piano had better resonate with that. And they'll hold down the damper pedal on the piano and that note in the piano will start ringing at 440 hertz. A440. It resonates. It's sound. It connects. What is sound doctrine? 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. This is the very first, top, top of the line, top of the pinnacle of the mountain. This is the first importance of all that Paul has written. He's written 15 chapters to this messed up, broken church in 1 Corinthians. He said, oh, I'll ever, let me make sure that you see what is of most importance to me. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You see where he keeps going back to that sword of the spirit? According to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one who is abnormally born. Paul was saying, he, he, he said these things, he did these things, and he, he talked to these people. And when he is writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's saying there's 500 people that you can go and you can talk to them. Some of them have fallen asleep. It's a polite way of saying some of them have gotten old and they've died. But some of them you can still talk to and ask. And we don't have any evidence of the contrary when you go back to biblical history or any history from that time period to say that these claims were absurd or false. That these claims were actually true, that there actually were 500 people that could go and they could talk to those people and say, yes, this happened, I was there, I saw this Jesus, the Christ. So that's what is to be proclaimed. That Jesus came according to the scriptures, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that Jesus rose again according to the scriptures, and that Jesus was seen by multiple people according to the scriptures. That's the gospel that we, we proclaim. That's the sound doctrine that we teach. That's, that's what we need to be talking about. That's what keeps us. That's what protects us. That's what holds us all together. So what? I had a preaching professor who would listen to our sermons, and from the back he'd take off his glasses, and he, just had, he said, so what? Now what? Nice sermon. Big deal. What do you want me to do with it? And as the band comes back up, as Mario comes up to lead this last song, so what? Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not fear what men can do to you. Do not be afraid of what men can do to you. We saw with Peter, when people started questioning him, this circumcision group starts showing up and saying, you should be doing this, you should be adding more to it. Do not fear. If you are in sound doctrine, if you are a qualified leader who is saying, you know what, I'm going to adhere to sound doctrine, that is what's going to drive me. And sound doctrine is what I'm going to proclaim. Don't fear what men can do to you. Secondly, believe the great gospel of Christ and do not be a hypocrite. Do not be a hypocrite. 
We were talking with a neighbor this week, yesterday, and she was telling the story. I took my kids to camp, summer camp, and it was a camp that she used to attend. But her faith has been severely damaged by people who say one thing on Sundays and live an entire different life the rest of the week. And she cannot reconcile those two. If you believe the gospel of Christ, do not play the hypocrite. Live the life that God has called you and me to live. Thirdly, believe the gospel of Christ and do not nullify the grace of God. Do not nullify the grace of God. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. When it comes down to it, when we talk about grace, grace can be a loaded word. But it's only by God's grace that we live this life. And so some of you look around and you see what you see to be behaviors like you would see in 1 Corinthians, in Corinth. You say, how can people live this life? How do they live that? And they're claiming to have freedom in Christ. And you start to narrow and narrow and narrow in on God's grace. Don't nullify God's grace. Because as soon as you do that, this, this passage here, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that we begin to do what? We begin to boast. I say, man, how many works did you do today? I don't know. One or two? I did 11. I had 11 works today. I'm so going to heaven before you do. Don't nullify the grace of God. There's a, there's a parable that Jesus tells about three different men who come to work at different times of the day, and he's promised each of them the same wages. The man who came and worked for one hour at the end of the day received the same wage as the others. Don't nullify the grace of God. When it comes to false teachers, do not add to the gospel. Do not take away from the gospel. And when you see that, when you're around that, have the boldness to silence that but proclaim sound doctrine. Proclaim the gospel. Do not be afraid to do so. Dear Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. Lord, there are times when we need to pump the brakes and we're given very clear instructions on that when those times are. Lord, give us the boldness to do so. But in that, Lord, allow us to know the balance of grace. We thank you for the grace that you've shown on each of us. We thank you for who you are and how you've interacted with us in a very personal way. Lord, if there's someone this morning you are interacting with now, Lord, there are many in this room right now that know that the life they're living is not aligned, is not resonating with sound doctrine. Lord, I pray that they would have the boldness to step forward, not be worried about what others might say. Come and talk to me in the back after this service. Lord, send an email, write something on a connection card to take one step towards you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come
I come. Let's sing that again, just as I am, without one plea. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am and waiting not to my soul of one dark blood to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot O Lamb of God I come I Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come, O Lamb of God, I come.